Never see death. Doesn't that sound exciting? The Bible says death is our last, what? It's our last enemy, isn't it? And Jesus promises that if we are his disciples, we will never see death. Somebody say hallelujah. Yes. So look with me. I just want us to read the section. We've been, if you're new with us, we have been working our way through the uh, harmony of the Gospels. We're walking with Jesus. And uh, we are currently in John's Gospel, chapter 8. And I want to call your attention to verse 48. Jesus has just told the religious leaders that are confronting him, he's just told them that uh, Abraham is not their father, neither is God their father. But then he said to them, who was their father? The devil. I don't know about you, but I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when he said that to those guys. <laughs> Abraham's not your father. God's not your father. Your father is the devil. So now in response to this, we read in verse 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You would think they would say, whoa, devil's our father. What do we need to do to change that? No. No, they dig their hole deeper. Jesus responds, he said, I'm not possessed by a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he is the judge. I will tell you the truth. If a man keeps my word, he will never see death. Wow. At this, the Jews, and, and when it says the Jews, it means, whenever you see that word in the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, it means the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious establishment. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you're demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. And you say that if a man keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? <laughs> Jesus replies, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. Isn't that the truth? If you, if you seek for your own glory, it, it just means nothing. You know, you're pitiful. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Why aren't you glad, he says. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Wow. Let's parse that, shall we? Jesus makes 
among other, two very, very astounding claims in this passage, in these verses. First, in verse 51, he claims that if anyone was to keep his word, that person would never see what? Never see death. Now, we'll talk about that. What does he mean by that in a few minutes? The second claim he makes is in verse 58, where he says, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, we'll look at those two in more detail. But before we do, I want to just address the immediate context of the passage. What is going on in the background? What's going on here? What's going on between Jesus and the, uh, the Jewish leaders? Are they having a tea party? No. What's going on? Conflict. There's conflict there. So I want to suggest to you that though we see conflict on this immediate plane, there's a greater degree of conflict going on in the background. How many know what I'm talking about? It's called spiritual warfare. This is an example of spiritual warfare. The conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Jesus points out that these religious leaders were actually enemies of the very God they claim to save, serve. You're his enemies. Satan has made it his purpose. He has made it his purpose to wage war against God and against his servants. And where did that warfare start? Anybody hazard a guess? Where did the warfare between Satan and God start? In the heavens. It started in heaven. It only then went to the garden. There are two very interesting Old Testament passages, Isaiah chapter 14, Ezekiel chapter 28. These are veiled passages. And God calls, and you, when you read through the Old Testament, you read all the prophets, God calls the prophets to call judgment down on, all, on not only on Israel and Judah, but on the nations that persecuted them. And in these two passages, God calls Isaiah and Ezekiel to address the ruling powers, the ruling authorities, the kings of these particular nations, Tyre and Sidon. And then right in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the pronouncement of judgment, there is a, a kind of a, a morph to all of a sudden now you think, wait a minute, he's not talking to a king, he's talking to somebody else. He's talking to another being, a supernatural being. Just look with me. We'll just read part of the passage. Isaiah chapter 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn. Who in the world is that? Now, if you don't have the rest of the Bible and you don't, you don't have the continuity of the unfolding of, of God's revelation, and if the Bible would just ended right there, you would have no clue who that was. O morning star, son of the dawn, you've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, now notice this. Notice all the I will statements, expressions of self-will. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. 
I will make myself like the most high. Does that sound like rebellion to you? Pride? Arrogance? There's a companion passage in Ezekiel chapter 28. Again, here's, here's a word to this being. You were the model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz, emerald, chrysolite, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, beryl. Your settings and mountains were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. In other words, this being, whoever it is, was the most beautiful, most powerful being in all of creation to behold. A created being. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. Now, what's a cherub? An angel. We know that from, from the scriptures, right? Cherubim were a class of angels, apparently. We don't have a lot of information, but apparently they were a class of angels that stood right at the throne of God. We get that hint from the picture in uh, the book of Exodus when God commands Moses to uh, erect the, uh, the uh, sanctuary, and then he's going to build a box. And on the top of the box, the lid of the box is called the mercy seat. It's pure gold. And the point of the mercy seat was, this is where God's presence would dwell amongst his people as they wandered through the wilderness. God would dwell with his people. He would dwell in the midst of his people. But also on that, on that lid of that box were two angelic figures in gold, cherubim, at the very presence of God. Here was the anointed cherub. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was what? Found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God. I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became what? Wow. On account of your beauty. How could a perfect being rebel? It apparently has a choice. People are always troubled about Adam and Eve. Well, they were perfect, but they were perfect. Yeah, they were created in an untested state of righteousness, but that righteousness had to be tested. They had to have an opportunity of their own volition to demonstrate their loyalty to God. God gave them a choice, didn't he? Yes. Apparently Satan had a choice. He was prideful because of his beauty. And hence he rebelled. He rebelled. Now, if you're here this morning and you say, ah, I don't believe in any of that stuff. I don't believe in Satan and the devil. He has you fooled. He has you fooled. I would suggest you get a Bible and start reading it. Okay, don't lean on your own understanding. Jesus says in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. The conflict started in heaven, but it didn't end there. The conflict continued down on earth with Adam and Eve. 
our first parents. You, you read the Genesis account, and, and here's Adam and Eve, and here's this serpent. Did God really say? Sowing doubt, sowing doubt. And that warfare continues today. It continues just as fiercely as ever. Satan is still doing all he can to corrupt, interfere with, hinder God's plan, purposes, and message. So how, do we have any, do we have any resources? Do we, does, has God given us any way to engage the battle? Yes. Has he? Yes. Where do we go to find that? Yeah, the armor of God, Ephesians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul tells us that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. He tells us to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. In another place, he tells us we are not unaware of the schemes of the devil. We know his tactics. Especially if you read your Bible, you, you, you know, you, you got the scoop. You got, you, I got you, I got you, I know how you work. Put on the full armor of God, not just part of it. So you can take your stand against the schemes of the devil. Now he says, look at, he says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. We're, we're not enemies of each other. We're, our battle is not with each other. Sadly, most of the time, we make it that way. Well, I don't like it. Your mother wears combat boots. <laughs> no, our battle, our struggle is not with each other. It's with spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. You read your Bible and you see again and again and again how there are apparently are spiritual forces of darkness arrayed against nations, people groups, leaders. That's why Paul says pray for all men. Pray especially for your leaders, your government. You intercede on their behalf because they're easily influenced by spiritual forces of darkness to lead them astray so that they will lean on their own understanding, not acknowledging God in all their ways. This is very real stuff. The context then is Jesus confronting these servants of Satan. In fact, later on, now we're, we're at this juncture in the gospels, we're about six months out from Jesus being crucified. The rest of the way in, we're going to see him now getting closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. You get to Matthew chapter 23, which is the very week of his passion. And he has another confrontation with all the spiritual leaders in Jerusalem, all the chief poobahs. And the conflict reaches an absolute climax when he pronounces what's known as the seven woes on them. He calls them sons of hell. I submit to you that he is still trying to offer them eternal life. 
but they're getting harder and harder and harder and harder. He is faithful. They're choosing not. Now, notwithstanding the spiritual warfare that we experience, all of us, every day, have you ever wondered something happened to you? You go, what, what, did, what, did, what did this happen? Where did this come from? There's no apparent cause, no apparent rationale. You've been trying to be really good, do your thing, mind your own business, be a nice person, and all of a sudden, <laughs> anybody know what I'm talking about? I submit to you, that is, that's a function of the spiritual warfare. The enemy attacks. Now, I don't say that for us to be afraid of, of, of spiritual warfare. I say that so that we'd be alert, not unaware of his schemes. One of the devil's greatest ploys is discouragement. Anybody ever been discouraged? He is constantly, constantly tempting us to look at our circumstances and to be discouraged by them, to feel discouraged. We end up in what's called the slew of despond. You're dead in the water. You don't even know if you believe anymore. I've talked to people over the years and just thought, I, I don't know if I believe, I don't know if I believe any of this. It's unrelenting. So despite all the spiritual warfare that we have to contend with, what is our real problem? Thank you, Jerry. Say it out loud. Sin. Sin. That's our real problem. So you can't go around all day saying, well, the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. No, no. He'll, he'll manipulate circumstances. He'll titillate you. He'll do all he can. He'll tempt you. But it's still your choice. Sin is a real problem. We need to be set free from sin. The Bible says that we are slaves to sin. Slaves. We need to be set free. We are slaves to its power. Sin is, if you can think about it, as a spiritual disease that permeates every fiber of our being. And we're a slave to it. We have no power over it. We need somebody to come and set us free. We're slave to its power. We're slave to its penalty. What's sin's penalty? Death and hell. Jesus says he'll come and he set us free from sin's power. Romans chapter 6, through faith in Jesus Christ, you shall no longer be a slave to sin. We're free from its power. We're free from its penalty. But we're not yet free from its presence in these bodies. It still resides with us physically. So the Apostle Paul tells us, he says, okay, now you've been set free. Don't let sin reign any longer in your mortal body. It wants to reign. It's been used to reigning. But now you say no. 
No. I'm not going down that path anymore. I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to participate in that anymore. No. You have to exercise your will. And the more you exercise your will, the stronger you get. But it's God's strength because you're exercising your will to obey him. Am I making sense here? In verses 31 and 32, Jesus tells us that if we persevere in his teaching, then we will, we will be his disciples. See, I think there's a difference between saying, I believe in Jesus and being his disciple. I think it's a big difference. People say, oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, but are you his disciple? He makes that fairly clear in a number of passages. He says, if you persevere in my word, you will be my disciple, and then you will know the truth. And the truth will set free. Wow. I want to know the truth. Now, we live in a culture today where there, there's, there, no one believes in truth. Everything's relative. All of our kids, all of our young people have been raised in school, values-free education for, for almost two generations now. You talk about truth, huh? It's like you go back to Pontius Pilate and he says, what's truth? When Jesus is standing before him, you remember that? People don't believe in truth anymore. They don't believe in absolutes anymore. Well, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Let's get along. You're nuts. He says, if we know the truth, he'll set us free. The only way you're going to know the truth is we what? Persevere in his word. That's why the Bible is so important. That's why it's so important to read it, to meditate on it, to memorize it. David says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I have verses. I've memorized hundreds and hundreds of verses. I've memorized books of the Bible. I have this reservoir over nearly 40 years of walking as a Christian built up in me where I can draw on verses and passages. Amen. I know the truth. There is no doubt in my mind. Amen. He wants to set people free, no longer to be slaves of sin and Satan. And these religious leaders have claimed to be Abraham's children, and certainly, naturally speaking, they are descendants of Abraham. But they're not spiritual descendants. They are not of the faith of Abraham. If you go back to Romans chapter 4, and Paul, the Apostle Paul spells that out. They claimed not only that Abraham was their father, they claimed also that <coughs> excuse me, God was their father. But again, as we saw earlier, Jesus said, no, Abraham is not your father, nor is God your father. Your father is the devil, Satan himself. They didn't belong to God as evidenced. He could say that to them because the evidence they gave, what was the evidence they gave? Their spiritual deafness to what God was saying through Jesus. They resisted and rejected everything he said. Evidence 
that they were not God's children. He says that to them. Now, they're unable, unable to conquer him. They're not able to persuade him. They can't refute him. So they resort to now what we call ad hominem attacks. How many know what an ad hominem attack is? All right, just listen to our candidates for public office. They don't really talk about the issues. They just attack each other. Yeah, well, your mother wears combat boots too. Yeah. Ad hominem attacks simply are, 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 are attacks on a person's character, on them personally. And they attack him in two ways. They first call him a Samaritan. Whoa, where does this come from? They call him a Samaritan. Now, if you didn't know, Samaritans were, in effect, half-breeds. Centuries earlier, the nation of Israel was broken up into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The Assyrian Empire came and conquered the northern kingdom, carried off and killed all the Jews of the ten northern tribes, left a remnant in the land, and then imported godless Gentiles. So those Jews who were the remnant and the Gentiles that were imported by the Assyrians, intermarried, produced what we understand now as the Samaritans. So they were half-breeds. They weren't purebred Jews. And so over the centuries now, the Jews, if you were a Jew in Jerusalem or Judea, you were pure. You, you took great pride in your, in your heritage as a Jew. And those Samaritans were unclean dogs, no better than a Gentile. Now, of course, the Samaritans didn't take kindly to that, so they hated the Jews. So you had this animosity going on. One of the most vile insults one Jew could hurl at another one was to say, you are a Samaritan. And you see this happening right here. They call him a Samaritan. Do you suppose that Jesus agreed with the way the teachers of the law taught the law? What do you think? No, you just read the gospel. He says, you've heard it said, but I tell you. He clearly did not agree with how they taught the law. The law was designed as a schoolmaster to bring people to the Lord, not to push them away. They taught it in the latter manner. And so they're saying to him, you know, you, you're, you're like a Samaritan. You don't teach the law. You don't agree with how we teach the law. You are hence a traitor. You're a Samaritan to Israel. You're not like us. You're not one of us. But if that weren't bad enough, they claim that he's demon-possessed. We would say, you're nuts. You're insane. In that context, they claim he's demon-possessed. Why? Because no one would say the things to these guys that Jesus is saying if they were in their right mind. These are the religious poobahs. He's saying to them, your father is the devil. They have no category for that. So they turn around and they call him demon-possessed. Notice... In Jesus' response, he ignores the racial slur. He doesn't address the issue of being a Samaritan. He just ignores it. 
but he does deal with the issue of being demonized. Now, let me just stop and say a moment about this. There seems to be a lot of confusion amongst a lot of people about demons and what place do they play in our lives and can Christians be demonized and all this sort of thing. In fact, I had a conversation this week about, about an individual, should this person be, presumably a Christian, should this person be exercised? In fact, I had a conversation last night after the service with another person who is claiming to be demonized. I said, well, what does the Bible say? I said, you, you read all of Paul's letters, John's letters, Peter's letters to the churches, instructing them in matters of faith and doctrine. Nowhere will you find them instructing people in those churches to cast demons out of each other. Nowhere. Satan does get access to our life. Paul tells us how. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, do not give the devil a foothold. Don't give him a place. And unwittingly, we do. You find yourself in some kind of secret sin nobody else knows about except God, you, and the devil. Some kind of rebellion, some kind of willfulness, some kind of unforgiveness, some kind of anger that you continue to carry with you. You give him a foothold in your life and he has access now. Well, what should I do? Should I come and have the elders cast him out of me? No. What do you think is the answer? Repentance. Yeah. You repent, you remove the foothold. Peter and James both say, resist him and he will flee. Does that help? It's a little primer on how to deal with the devil. And so Jesus says to them, he says, I am not possessed by a demon. You guys are missing it. I'm not possessed by a demon. In fact, he goes on to tell them, he says, my purpose my purpose is to honor my father and turn people to him. This is what he says you guys should be doing. You're not honoring my father and you're not turning people to him. You're turning people away from him. He next tells them that in dishonoring him, they're ultimately dishonoring his father. When in fact, if they were truly honoring the Father, they would honor who? They would honor Jesus. And thirdly, he says to them, I'm not seeking my own glory, but the Father's glory. Is it fair to say that when you study the Gospels and you read about these religious leaders, is it fair a statement to make that they would seem to be seeking their own glory? Oh, yeah, you can't miss it. He's saying, I'm not seeking my glory like you guys. But there is one who seeks for my glory. And he is the judge. In Psalm 2, you read about God's pronouncement that, he's, that Jesus 
is the Lord. And he says at the end of that psalm, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you. Talks about embracing him, draw close to him, lest you experience his wrath. There is one who seeks for his glory. In Philippians chapter 2, you read that very same sentiment. Let me read this to you. Philippians chapter 2. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's telling them what the, what the agenda is. And you see it played out, both Old Testament and New Testament, that Jesus will be exalted. Is he exalted today? Oh, and in, in pockets. Most of the time when you hear Jesus' name spoken out there, how is it spoken? You know, it's used in a vain manner. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. I, I, it's just a cringe. I said, I used to say, I don't say this anymore because it only led to a fight. I said, yeah, I don't know about you, but that's my, that's my Lord and Savior's name. I don't care. What's your mother's name? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? No, don't use that. <laughs> Not unless you prepare for a fight. <laughs> then he makes this, this momentous claim as we've been working our way to it. Verse 51, he says, I tell you the truth, if a man keeps my word, he will never see death. See, if one is a true disciple, persevering in his word, keeping his word, persevering in his word, that person will never experience eternal separation from God. <coughs> it doesn't mean that he won't die. There's some confusion on the part of some about that verse. Well, it says he'll ne I'll never see death. There, there are cults that teach never see death. No, no, no. We're, if the Lord should tarry, we're still going to die. But death no longer is, a threat, is no longer a threat to us. It's a, a porthole, if you will, into glory for the Christian. When he says you'll never see death, he means you'll never be separated eternally from God. That's what he's talking about. Paul tells us that death is our last enemy. Death is our last enemy. But it has been swallowed up in victory through the resurrection from the dead. Man, oh man. Man, oh man, what a promise. God said to Adam in the garden, the day you eat of that fruit of that tree that I told you not to eat from, that's the day you die. That's the day you'll be separated from me. That's the day you'll be separated from yourself. That's the day you'll be separated from your neighbor. That's the day you'll be separated from all of creation. Question, as we look around, do we see separation every place we look? As hard as we try to bring reconciliation and bring people together and, and get our own act together, it is hard, impossible. 
separated from God. There's a hierarchy of relationship. Only as I'm rightly related to him can I then be rightly related to myself. You mean you can have a relationship with yourself? Well, yeah. <laughs> Haven't you ever had a bad hair day? Oh. <laughs> I don't like myself today. If I'm not rightly related to him, I'll never be rightly related to myself. And I'm not rightly related to myself, I can never be rightly related to my neighbor. And we can never be rightly related to each other in a way so that we can take care of what God has entrusted to us. The day you eat of the fruit of that tree is the day you die. That's the day you're separated. Adam and Eve said, yes, Lord. Okay, whatever you say. We're not going, we're not going to eat the fruit. tragic the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord Jesus offers life he offers us hope he offers us forgiveness this is one of the greatest promises of God in the Bible that we would never see death the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is still offering these religious leaders eternal life. He still offers it to people today. Still offers it to people today. But to see, they, they hear Jesus, but they only hear him in a literal, temporal, earthly sense. And we know that because they say, now we know that you're demon-possessed. You really, you're really out there. Who do you think you are? Abraham and the prophets all died. None of them defeated death. And Jesus said, verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Why not you? If you claim him to be your father, he saw my day, he rejoiced, he was glad. Why not you? In saying that Abraham rejoiced, Jesus contrasts their attitude and behavior with that of Abraham himself. Proving they were not Abraham's spiritual children. Because they wanted to, what, to do what to Jesus? Kill him. He's upsetting their status quo at the very least. They're going to kill him. And in fact, in fact, they twisted Jesus' words. Look with me at verse 57. One more time. Look at verse 57. This is interesting. They say, you are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? He said, well, how did they twist his words? He never said he saw Abraham. He said, Abraham prophetically saw him and rejoiced and was glad. Again, when you're, when you're with someone who just will not listen 
when they're done, even with the ad hominem attacks, they're going to twist your words. <laughs> Abraham rejoiced. They're thinking, you know, you're not even 50 years old. He's in his early 30s. United 50 years old. Abraham lived 2,000 years ago. The prophets lived hundreds of years ago. They all died. And then Jesus drops a bombshell on him. Verse 58. Look at it with me. What's the bombshell? I tell you the truth. You can take this to the bank. Before Abraham was born, I am. Whoa. What in the world is that all about? What's he doing there? He's making himself equal with God. I am. Go back to Exodus chapter 3, remember? Moses is out there in the wilderness minding his father-in-law's flocks. He glances over and sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up. That's curious. I'm going to go check that out. He approaches the bush. A voice says, take off your shoes. Whoa, you're on holy ground. It's God talking to him. Most of you know the account and all the conversation went on. And finally, guess the point. Moses is supposed to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go and do all that. So Moses, you know, he says, well, well when I go, who, who should I say sent me? Tell him I am sent you. That's God's personal name. I am. It's a timeless, it, it, it describes his timelessness. No beginning, no end. Eternal. Tell him I am sent you. The Jews knew exactly that name. And when they would read their scriptures and they would pronounce their scriptures, whenever they came to the name, we understand it is translated, transliterated as Yahweh. They would never even say the name because it was so sacred. They'd be reading through the scriptures, and where they would come to that, they'd say, the name. The name. The name. They wouldn't even utter it. And here's Jesus saying, I am. Notice how they respond. They fall down in awe and worship. They fall down and cry out in repentance and ask for forgiveness. Oh, no! Woe is us! Do they do that? What do they do? They know exactly what he's saying. He's making himself equal with God. They know exactly what he's saying, but they reject him. He's blaspheming. In the penalty for blasphemy, stoning to death. They picked up stones to kill him. But it's not yet his time. He has six more months, doesn't he? Not his time. So I love how John puts it. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself. <laughs> how did he do that? He hid himself. He was here one moment. Oh, where'd he go? He was just here. Now you see me, now you don't. He hid himself. What's the point? What's the point? 
The point is very simply this. It just, it boils down to this. There are only two possible responses to Jesus. He says, either you're with me or you're against me. You can't be neutral. You can't say, ah, yeah, I don't have an opinion. You're against him. Only two possible responses. The first is believe in him. That's not just an intellectual assenting. Believe in him means, okay, I'm going to follow you. I talk to people all the time, and I, I query them, and, you know, I want to get into their life and find out where they live, and I already know per, for the most part, generally. But I'll ever ask people, I say, you know, can I ask you a personal question? People always want to share their life. They always want to talk about themselves. So I say, do you have anybody that you really admire? That you would kind of say as a mentor or you would follow that person and follow their, their example, their teaching? Is anybody you follow? A lot of people do. They have people in their life that they, they, they just think the world of and they say, oh yeah, you know, I, I follow this and I just, you know, I'm a student of this. I say, oh really? Hmm. And I'm waiting. What am I waiting for? I'm waiting for them to ask me if there's anybody I follow. And who do I follow? Jesus. And I tell them why I follow Jesus. I just lay a choice up for them. You can become a disciple of Jesus. It means you follow him. You follow him. And it is costly to follow him. He calls you to die to yourself, to deny yourself. If you're not willing to do that, you cannot and will not follow him. You'll say, I believe. You'll say, I think I'm a Christian. I believe I'm a Christian. But if you're not following him, you have no guarantee. You're not his disciple. Not persevering in his word. But if you do become his disciple, he says, you will never see death. Now, what's the second possible response to Jesus? Just like his enemies here. Reject him, die in your sins, and spend eternity in hell. Hell is such a horrendous, horrendous thing. We don't even, we hardly ever talk about it. People don't want to even think about it. So we joke about it. Oh. Yeah, 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 I'll be down there with all my buds, you know, we'll be drinking. And, no, 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 no. You'll, you'll never see another person. You'll never hear another sound. And if you do hear a sound, it'll be your eternal cries of regret. You'll be kicking yourself forever in the darkness, in the bottomless pit, where the worm never dies. The anguish would be unreal. Because the anguish would be over the fact that you knew back in time and space and history, there was a chance, you had an opportunity, you know, you know that you said no. All of us have regrets, don't we? Yeah. What was I thinking? You weren't thinking. And you're going to live with those regrets. Hell. If you don't believe in Jesus, go with him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. 
We thank you that you know our condition. You know what we need. We're sorry, Lord, for just rejecting you. We're sorry for leaning on our own understanding and not acknowledging you in all of our ways. We're thankful for the great gift of Jesus. Thankful for the hope that we have of glory. Father, if there's anybody here this morning that doesn't know salvation, I pray that you would just speak into their hearts and minds by your spirit. Convict them, convince them, bring them to a place where they can no longer say no and deny, but rather surrender their life, as so many have, and know the new life that you've come to bring. While your head's about, I just want to give an opportunity for anybody at all. I'd like to pray with you, but I want to know if there's anybody who wants to pray to just make a prayer of commitment to Jesus. If that's you this morning, just raise your hand right now real quick. We'll just take a minute. Anybody at all? Just lift your hand right now. I see the hand way in the back. Okay, good. Back, back here, I see your hand. Okay. Anybody else? Over there? Okay, good. I see this hand on the aisle over here. Anybody else? Don't let this time pass. This is one of those moments when you can very easily say yes. Right there where you're sitting, just make this your prayer. God, forgive me. I confess that I am a sinner. I've always thought I was a good person, but I realize now I can't be good enough. I need you. I confess my sins to you. I repent of them. And I ask you to come into my life. Grant me new life. Forgiveness of my sins. Cleansing from all my unrighteousness. Give me new life today. I believe in Jesus. I give you thanks. Amen.